Welcome to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Batchelor, and Randy Janda. We do this show slash podcast every single week. Well, almost every single week, Randy, because we were off last week. We initially thought that we were going to be off during the All-Star break, and then we did an emergency show when the Canucks acquired Elias Lindholm. And then we actually ended up being off last week because you were under the weather, actually had to miss a handful of games. So thanks to Brett Festerling for stepping in for you. But after a one-week hiatus, here we are back again. That's right, and uh, I don't like missing games, kind of like you, Batch. I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of that, but sometimes the body tells you you need to shut it down. So it's good to be back. It's uh, good to be back in the booth, literally and figuratively, as we have a chance to talk about this team. Absolutely, we do, and uh, I will say we'll see what happens over the next few weeks for this show because last week you were under the weather. Right now, my wife and I are expecting a new addition to our family any day here. So we'll see if we're able to get a show out next week or if things are crazy for me and I might be missing a handful of games. So, um, you know, we'll kind of deal with that as it comes. But early warning for listeners that if we don't have a show again next week, you probably can understand why. And because we're on Baby Watch, you covered me at practice today, Randeep. So uh, we are recording this show on Friday the 16th. Uh, So give me the update from Canucks practice on Friday coming off the Thursday night win on home ice over the Detroit Red Wings and ahead of the Saturday night matchup against the Winnipeg Jets. Well, first of all, baby watch is no joke. Uh, So, you know, congratulations to your family. And obviously we're going to be watching closely as as uh, the weekend develops here. So batch, I got you covered. Don't worry about that. And when it comes to practice uh, today, Got there a little bit early, and power play one was right on uh, on the ice. No other players on the ice, and power play one going through the motions. They were going through some instruction, which was player-directed. The coaches weren't really involved, and a lot of JT Miller uh, communicating with his team members. So that was the first thing, where JT, um, Elise Pedersen, Elias Lindholm, Brock Besser, and Quinn Hughes were on the ice and trying to figure out that power play that's gone 0 for 15 in the last five games hasn't been able to score so much. And even talking to JT after the practice, he said, hey, yeah, you know what? We haven't, we've been playing well as a team, but the power play still needs to get a little bit better and we need to figure out some things. Part of that is also having a new piece in the mix. Uh, Also part of that is having JT Miller playing down low rather than at the left half wall, an area that he likes to play in. So that was one of the things from practice. The other thing uh, being Dakota Joshua, uh, Rick Tockett mentioned that officially week to week, for the Canucks third liner who's had a heck of a season and that's not a a great designation it's probably that one that we're not surprised with to be quite honest with you but a couple of updates from practice today yeah and we'll get to Joshua and what that means for the team in a moment but let's start with that power play because you're right they haven't been very good lately as you mentioned the 0 for 15 stretch now we saw at times on the road trip that Rick Tockett would start the second power play unit, and that was sort of a a shot across the bow and a big message to his top guys that they needed to be better. And I think, in general, the Canucks' top players were relatively quiet through the post-All-Star break road trip. Uh, And we saw some production from them in the game on Thursday against the Red Wings, but that production came at 5-on-5. And we'll get into, you know, the 5-on-5 situation with the the new-look Pedersen line with Lindholm going to the middle now and how that's going to work going forward coming up. But specifically on the power play and specifically on this first 
power play unit. My assessment anyway, and, you know, I'm I'm not a power play coach. I'm not someone that's grinding in the coach's office trying to figure out the best way to get these guys going. But I think what we've seen from this man advantage when it's struggled, and especially of late, is they're too tentative. They're, they're too, too patient, maybe. Like, they're trying to find the perfect play. And what that results in is some sustained zone time with possession, but no chances. A lot of passing the puck back to Hughes at the top. He'll go to someone at the circle. They'll go back to Hughes. He'll go to the other circle. And they're not penetrating. They're not getting to the middle of the ice. They're not beating pressure and attacking the net like Rick Tockett wants them to. And my initial reaction upon hearing what you talked about with JT Miller is that I actually agree with Miller. And the reason that I I like him in a shooting spot rather than at the net front is because he's one of the few guys that is willing to shoot the puck on that power play right now. He's the least tentative. He's the most confident in terms of just releasing pucks to the net. And part of me says that that's what this power play needs to do to get some momentum and some chemistry and get feeling confident again, is just shoot the puck more. And, And that's kind of my assessment from watching the games of late. And we've seen JT, even when he's down low, trying to be a little bit more assertive from you know, lower down, essentially dropping that shoulder and making a move towards the net, something we haven't maybe seen from Canucks forwards that are playing that position. But that's one of the things, when you look at the way that JT Miller has been able to play and, you know, talking to JT in that availability, he did mention that he talked to Rick Tockett and the Sedins and said, hey, I want to play the net front. I want to play down low. Based on the, the personnel and players and the talent we have, I think this is a spot for me. So that's an interesting touch there from a player who is, you know, not uh, shy of coming up with his own suggestions and taking the bull by the horns. So him going from half wall to the net front role is more of a, a JT Miller believes in that as well. But I agree with you. I think that half wall gives him, A, the shooting threat, but how many passes have there been, you know, back door where it looks like he's taken that shot and it's a, you know, a pass to that back post and it's a tap in for Brock Besser or another player. It just gives them options. And as good as Brock Besser has been this year, and as good as Brock Besser has been able to find the greasy areas in front of the net, does he provide that same option for you on that left half wall? I don't think he does. So I'm curious to see how long this goes. It's something that it seems like JT Miller's all on, you know, aboard on board with in terms of playing the the down low spot. But how long does this last? And if they have success, maybe it runs a little longer, but it's interesting to see that they've looked most dynamic when JT's going downhill and making that pass or that shot. The other thing I would say is one area that they were really focusing on practice today is, and you mentioned it, where maybe not moving the puck as quickly or maybe being as decisive on the power play. Today, they were just snapping around a lot of passes and not necessarily, you know, that's not all that different from what we've seen Batch in the past, but the speed at which they were making those passes uh, very different from what we've seen in the power play where I think the the focus was, hey, make those decisions quicker. When you sit with the puck for a little bit longer, it makes it easy for the PK. Make that pass quicker so you've got, you know, that PK chasing because one of the issues that I've really, you know, noticed over the last few games, definitely the last five or six is it's a little bit comfortable for the PK. They're not necessarily chasing the play. It's all in front of them and you could... Tell it today at practice, they're trying to make those decisions a little quicker. 
Yeah, urgency, right? That, mm-hmm. like that kind of feels like what they need a little bit because that's how you get penalty kills sort of on their heels and out of position and you create mismatches in certain areas of the ice or you're able to beat pressure and create chances and the urgency hasn't been there of late. So whether that's snapping pucks quickly, whether it's being willing to release shots and you know, talking about the Miller thing, I agree with you that his shot keeps penalty kills honest so that he does have those passing lanes sometimes if guys are committing to block the shot and not worried about, say, Besser at the net front at the back door or Pedersen at the right circle being wide open. And I think the other thing we've seen is how good Elias Lindholm is at tipping pucks. And, you know, no better example than the two deflection goals he scored on the power play in his first game in Vancouver on the road in Carolina, or for Vancouver on the road in Carolina, I should say. I would like to see Miller on the left half wall, Lindholm at the net front, Besser in the slot, Pedersen on the right side, and Hughes top of the point because we know Lindholm can tip pucks. We know Besser has scored some goals from that Bo Horvat high slot one-time spot. We know Miller has scored goals or set up goals from that downhill shooting position on the left wing, and we know that Patterson can score goals from that right circle when he gets the puck to the net with more regularity. But the other thing I think we should say about this power play, and look, they're going through a tough stretch right now, but they're still one of the better power plays in the NHL on the whole this year, you know, when this power play has been at its best has been when it's fluid and when there's rotation and where they're able to create some of those mismatches that I talked about because guys are willing to switch and move to spots that maybe that's not where they start the power play, but you're okay ending up there and you can move any guy to any spot on the ice. And I think that's something that they've lost a bit on the man advantage of late too, regardless of whether you want Miller in the shooting spot or at the net front or whatever your opinions might be about where guys should be on the power play. If things are fluid, you're going to create chances anyway. And it has felt a little bit static of late. And I think it's fair to say in terms of criticism for this power play unit, which for the most part has been very good, that when they go through some of these tough stretches, it seems to me anyway to be directly connected to being more static and less fluid. Yeah, it seems like the players are trying to find their spots on the ice and not necessarily deviate from that or be as fluid. And, you know, the way that you had your ideal configuration on the power play, mine's not all that different. I think the only change that I would probably make is uh, you know, you if you have Lindholm in the bumper spot and you have uh, Brock Besser in the net front, I, I would just kind of switch those guys back and forth because I do feel like their skill sets uh, are are good for both of those roles. And a lot of those guys uh, have played multiple positions. JT Miller's essentially played every single role in the power play in his career. But to me, I think having Lindholm in the bumper, I don't mind that. He's got a great shot just like Brock Besser. But one thing is for sure that having Brock on that left-hand side, you just don't have that playmaking ability, uh, which you need on both sides. And he's a good player, but he's more of a finisher, as his, you know, 30 goals this year shows us. Uh, The other thing I would say is, you know, ideally, and listen, it's tough to replicate a Tampa Bay Lightning power play when you've got on one side of the ice Nikita Kucherov, the other side Steven Stamkos, and then you've got threats all over the place. But I do feel like when you're playing on those two players on the, uh, the, the half walls, they do require to be high-end dual threats. And when JT Miller is playing on that left-hand side, he's got that. We've talked about that, him going downhill, you know, that shot or that pass. Elias Pettersson, we can see his stats. He can back that up as well. He can make those excellent, you know, 
sauce passes, but he can go top corner as well. I think that drops off significantly when Brock is playing on that side instead of JT Miller because he's a decent passer, but is that what he's known for? No, he's known for shooting. And I just, I, in my situation, I, I want to have, you know, players on both of those flanks essentially being dual threats, which JT Miller and Elias Pettersson are. Absolutely. So we know the power play is going to be in the spotlight going forward over the next week with the game at home against Winnipeg on Saturday and then the three-game road trip heading into next week. So we'll see if some of the extra work they were able to put in in practice on Friday it can be applied to a pretty tough stretch in the schedule here. Like, they have to practice today. They're not going to get a whole lot of practice time. They play on Saturday. They'll travel to Minnesota Sunday. Then they got three games in four nights before returning home after that. So not a lot of time to work on these things, and it's going to have to be a lot of sort of, you know, rotating and figuring things out on the fly, not just for the power play unit, but for this group as well. A whole. So let's now switch and talk about the other thing that you brought up from the Friday practice for the Canucks, which is Dakota Joshua week to week now after the quote-unquote upper body injury suffered on Tuesday against the Blackhawks. Rick Tockett said he believed the injury was suffered in the fight with Mackenzie Entwistle for Dakota Joshua standing up for his teammate Connor Garland. And I'm going to be interested to see how big of a loss this is for the Canucks because Dakota Joshua has received a ton of praise lately, and rightfully so. He's having a career year. He's already eclipsed his career high for points in a season. He's been tremendously consistent, as has that line, and now they're going to miss him for, you know, let's say minimum a week if they're calling it week to week, probably longer than that, we're guessing. How does the lineup evolve with Joshua out of the lineup. We saw Mikheyev in that spot in the game against the Red Wings, and Tockett was asked about it after the game, and he said, yeah, he was okay. Like, it wasn't wasn't praise. It wasn't criticism. It was somewhere in the middle. So how are things going to work without Joshua in the lineup? Can someone else find a home on that line in the short term and try to help those guys continue to drive play at the level that they have? And the situation that I hearken back to with Joshua going out of the lineup that this kind of reminds me of is it's easy to forget that the line early in the season was Dakota Joshua, Pew Suter, and Connor Garland. And those guys had a ton of success. And then Pew Suter got injured, but Teddy Bluger had just come back into the lineup. So Bluger got that spot and he hasn't relinquished it. The guys have been consistent playing together as a three-man unit basically since mid-November when Bluger came back into the lineup. So the question is now, can someone fill in well enough for Dakota Joshua on that line that they can remain the play driving force that they've been for the Canucks? Or is Joshua really a big part of that line and it's integral that he be there for them to have success? And the reason I say this is interesting is for a couple of reasons. One, In the short term, you have to be able to withstand injuries. You're going to have to be able to withstand injuries if you want to go on a long playoff run. And having the knowledge that that line can continue to function well if one of its members goes out, and in particular in this case Dakota Joshua, would be important. And then in the longer term, in the bigger picture, 
Dakota Joshua is a pending free agent. There's a number of free agents on this team. There's been a lot of conversation lately about who you prioritize in terms of re-signing players and how you're going to go about that process. And we all know that guys like Joshua and Bluger are going to be lower priority compared to Patterson and Horonic. But this is an organization that's going to have some tough decisions down their lineup this offseason. And I wonder if someone else in this lineup, whether it be Mikheyev, whether it be Di Giuseppe, whoever they give a chance to play with Bluger and Garland, if someone else can fit in on that line, can help them drive play, can allow them to continue to have success, whether that will impact the team's view of Dakota Joshua and how high he should be on their list of priorities when it comes to re-signing guys in the offseason. Well, first of all, it is a, a massive loss for this team because this player who we had I think legitimate questions about at the beginning of the year based on the comments on conditioning and Rick Tockett being pretty open with where he wanted the player to be and always believed in the player, but did you know challenge him at the beginning of the season and the strides that Dakota Joshua has taken since then, whether it's you know being one of the best, if not the best penalty killing forward on this team. He's one of the most physical players in the league, let alone this team. He's an individual that's shown us that there's more playmaking, there's more goal scoring in his game than uh, a lot of us thought and maybe a lot of us had seen in his bit part roles in St. Louis. Uh, so when you start looking at the type of individual that he is and that aggressive forecheck, the chemistry with Connor Garland, it is a loss. But you're right, there is an opportunity here in the short term and the long term. Let's talk about the short term a little bit first. Ilya Mikheyev, I thought, had moments in the first period where he was better on the forecheck. Uh, maybe first couple of minutes didn't really hit. Uh, there's a lot of one and dones for that line in the zone. But as the game went on, as, as that first period went on, and the team got more into it, that line started to be a little bit more successful with their with their forechecks. And I think one area that Mikheyev is going to have to get to is just that chemistry, not necessarily offensive chemistry, but you know one thing that Bluger, Garland, and Joshua have done really well is that when they're on the forecheck and just supporting each other, in that in that forecheck and overpowering teams and and suffocating them, especially in the attacking zone, but even in the neutral zone, can you bring that consistently enough? Where the real strong part of this line has been that there are not many one and dones when they come into the offensive zone. If they hit you with a forecheck, they're going to be camping out in your zone for a while. If they score, that's great. If not, they're setting up the next line for success. And you know Dakota Joshua is a huge part of that. I think Ilya Mikheyev is capable of that. But he's going to have to show it, and he's going to have to show that he's got a little bit more pace in his game. He can be a sticky player, so to speak, as Rick Tockett calls it. And the more he does that, he can have success. Now, in the long term, you know, this is going to be an interesting one because, you know, a lot of this line is also, there's a couple of things that are going on. Dakota Joshua, I talked about how important of a player he's been, but we also have to consider the others, right? Connor Garland is an offensive driver on that line. And he's got a, a motor that very few people can replicate. And we've seen, especially the last two or three months, that when he's going like this, he is a thorn in the side to play against. Uh, how much of that is the chemistry that they have? How much of that is Connor Garland? How much of that is Dakota Joshua? And is that unique to this duo? Or when Garland plays this way, can you have another winger, you know, jive with them the same way? The other thing I would say is Teddy Bluger, there's a, a little bit more freedom for the wingers to play the way that they do when Teddy Bluger is your center. He's such a responsible center. He's so physical, but at the same time, you know, he's that sticky player yet again where he can sit back, he can lay back, he's not going to give you the, that much offense, Batch, 
but he does give some of those other players a little bit more freedom to be, you know, the F1 and the F2, and you can be aggressive because you know you've got Teddy back there. So I think long-term, we're going to see, you know, they're all pulling in the same direction. They're all part of the same line. But, you know, what really makes, you know, what who's the straw that stirs the drink on that line? Is it Dakota Joshua? Is it Connor Garland? Is it Teddy Bluger? I think we're going to find out a little bit here as his designation of week-to-weeks come out. Yeah, and the thing we know is that the identity of that line is going to change somewhat with him out of the lineup because he's second in the league in hits, right? He's by far the most physical player on the Canucks. Any other forward they put in that spot is not going to have that imposing physical presence, right? Mikheyev's not going to do that. DiGiuseppe's not going to do that. Anybody else they have doesn't bring what Dakota Joshua brings. And in fact, his skill set is quite unique in terms of his size, you know, his weight and the production that he's had this year and, and the consistency with which he's played. There aren't many guys like him in the NHL. And it is part of the reason that that line has legitimately been one of the best lines in the league consistently this season. But you're right that... Uh, you know, it's my opinion anyway that Connor Garland is the big play driver on that line, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Joshua because I think he's had a great season, and I don't think that line is anywhere near as good as it has been without him there. But as we look ahead to the offseason and this organization making tough decisions down the lineup, especially, you know, if they try to re-sign Elias Lindholm because they like the fit, and we're going to get into that coming up in the next segment because Rick Tockett raved about Lindholm and the way he played at center ice after the game against the Red Wings. But I do wonder if it resets your priorities a bit. And, you know, in my opinion anyway, Bluger is a much more important player to hold down beyond this season than Joshua. They're both pending free agents. And, you know, I think a big part of the Canucks' overall success this year, including the success of that line, has been how solidified things have been down the middle of the ice. If you look at the guys on this roster and in this lineup that can be competent NHL centermen, Patterson, Miller, Lindholm, Lafferty, Bluger, Suter, Oman, there, there's all yep. these guys that can play the middle, and that flexibility has allowed Rick Tockett to really have a pretty consistent, you know, understanding of what he's going to get down the middle. You lose a bit of that when you lose Teddy Bluger, and we know how important the middle of the ice is. And again, I'm not trying to take away from the year Dakota Joshua has had. I'm just suggesting that if you have to lose a player on that line or further down your lineup wingers are easier to replace than centermen. And that's why I look at this as an interesting stretch because if Bluger and Garland can continue to be the primary drivers on that line or, or can, you know, Bluger can maybe take more of that mantle from what Joshua has been doing and someone else can fit in with them there. You know, expendable is too strong of a word, but does it mean that Joshua isn't as high a priority as some people might have thought he would be for this organization going into the summer if that line can still continue to, you know, drive play and play well without him on it? It's going to be interesting to see it. You know what? The answer might be that no, that line struggles over the next few weeks and they really need Joshua. They need that big physical presence. And in fact, it is going to be very important to re-sign him. But I do wonder if this stretch is going to teach us a lot and teach the organization a lot about what direction they might need to go in in the offseason with their somewhat limited cap space. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating stretch here because he does so many things well. Uh, that size profile, 
is very unique for the ability to play, you know, five on five, the ability to, to be a key penalty killer and, you know, have some scoring touch. So it's going to be one thing there. I'm sure there's a lot of people asking, okay, hold on a second here. You guys are talking about Teddy Bluger and how important he is, but you have Pew Suter back there. Don't you have depth? Uh, if you're going to let somebody walk, would it not be Bluger? And the question, you know, is a valid one, but the answer I would give to that is with Pew Suter right now, he's playing on the wing in the top six, right? So you've got a player in Teddy Bluger that is so good defensively, he might not give you the offensive output, but he's a, a player that really is the defensive linchpin on that line. And in a way, Pew Suter is, you know, his strength is his ability to give you whatever you need at that given time. You need a first-line winger to play a, a third li- a third role, essentially, on the top line. He can do that. You need him to play anywhere in the top six. He can do that. He can, you know, support, play wing or center, a hybrid role on your third line. He's able to do that as well, Batch, but, you know, in terms of uh, the the either or of both of those guys, don't you want more players that can play the center position? So my answer to that would be, hey, you know, Bluger does some similar things to Pew Suter, but Suter also gives you the flexibility to have him go up the lineup, come down the lineup, play anywhere really in an afford position, whereas Bluger is... He's, he's your guy down the middle. You don't have to worry about the center position when he's there. If anything, you want Pew Suter as a backup if Bluger gets hurt. So that would be my rebuttal to anybody suggesting Teddy Bluger. I just think, you know, you need Pew Suter right now to be a bit of a, I've said it before, Swiss Army knife because that's what this roster needs, and he does a pretty good job at it. You can never have too many centermen, just like yeah. you can never have too many defensemen. So, you know, that's the way I look at it anyway. But, hey, we might have a completely different opinion if we're chatting this time next week and that line has really struggled without Joshua on it. This is In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Still lots more to come. On the other side, we'll talk about Elias Lindholm and break down his first six games as a Vancouver Canuck. Also... That new look line that had a pretty good night against the Red Wings on Thursday with Hoaglander and Pedersen on Lindholm's wings. we got a few listener questions as well. We'll get to those. And we will talk about the big story around the Vancouver Canucks this week, which was the arrival of Phil Kessel in Abbotsford. All of that still to come right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Batchelor, and Randy Janda. If you miss any part of the show listening on the radio right now, guess what? You're in luck. It lives as a podcast as well. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts on the Canucks Central feed. And you want to subscribe to that feed because you get In the Booth. You get every Canucks postgame show with Sat and Bick. And you get Canucks Central with Sat and Reach every single weekday. And you get emergency podcasts when breaking news happens around the Canucks, like the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago when they acquired Elias Lindholm over the All-Star break. And, Randy, let's start there. Elias Lindholm had another two-goal game in the win over the Red Wings. He's had a couple of those in his time as a Vancouver Canuck now. And there's been good, there's been bad, there's been ups, there's been downs with Lindholm in the Canucks lineup. Your initial impressions of what he's brought 
and then we'll kind of take this conversation and carry it forward into that line that he's on right now with Pedersen and Hoaglander and whether that could be something that sticks going forward. But let's start off with Lynn Holman, what you've thought of him. Well, my initial thoughts are, A, Rick Tockett loves the, uh, you know, ability to have another player that can play at a very high level, gives them, you know, a right shot centerman that can take faceoffs. And I know there's been kind of mixed results, but really the game that we really look back at and say, hey, uh, it was not good was the Boston game, right? It was a dash four in that game for Elias Lindholm. But outside of that, uh, to me, I- I've liked the way he played. And what really stands out to me is we talked about the versatility when he was traded for. Uh, that's something that whether it's, you know, positional and situational, we understood that coming in. If you watch a little bit of Calgary Flames hockey over the last few years, uh, that's the type of player he is. But what I like about his game is, and that Chicago goal that Niels Hoaglander scored, you know, the ability to play a little physical as well. He's not going to throw a bone-crunching hits, but just a smart player that knows how to use body position, knows how to use his frame. And on that play, on that Niels Hoaglander goal, just using, you know, uh, it's going head-to-head against a, a six-foot-six player in Jacob Megna, who doesn't play that well, but I give credit to Elias Lindholm to identify that and win the puck, separate man from the puck, and then, you know, dish off to Niels Hoaglander. So there's a real intelligence about his game, and he's got layers to his game as well, where we've seen the deflections. We've seen him score in transition off the rush against Detroit twice. Uh, the first goal, you know, coming in with speed through the neutral zone, and letting go a heck of a shot that Alex Lyon uh, didn't think was going to go into net, goes off the post and in. And then later on, playing trailer on a play where it looked like Elias Pedersen had, you know, maybe fumbled the puck and lost. But there's Elias Lindholm, stick on the ice, ready to go, pulls the trigger. So there are, you know, different ways he can score, different ways he can play. And that's why, as a coach, you love that because you're saying, okay, wait a second. You want to find chemistry. You want to find the best fit. That's uh, the case with anybody. But Batch, you and I know in the in the postseason, excuse me, you know there's going to be injuries. There's going to be situations where maybe the offense dries up. You need players that can give you something different. They can adapt their games to different lines. And even though it hasn't been a huge success, even though you know I think it, I think it's been a, a pretty good one with him scoring four goals. Uh, there's there's certain things in this game you can say, wait, wait a second. This translates to you know maybe uh, the postseason, and if you hit a dry spell. Uh, is this a guy that you can put in a different situation, a different line, and and can he give you something different? Can you shake it up with him? Is he somebody that could thrive under that? And I see that with Lindholm. Yeah, I think I would go even as far as to say that it has been a success through six mm-hmm. games, with really the lone exception being the game in Boston against the Bruins, which, you know, he and Pedersen were both minus four in that game. But there's a lot of criticism to go around about the way they played in Boston. It's not yep. like it's all on Elias Lindholm. For the most part, I've really liked what he've brought. he's brought. I agree, like some of the subtle things in his game are really noticeable. You ask Rick Tockett about some of the things he notices, and he'll just talk about his hockey IQ and how he's always in the right place, whether it's breaking up a play in his own zone or or just making a smart little move to, to allow a teammate a, a greater opportunity like that Hoaglander goal. And I think he's been really good on the penalty kill too, and that's something that was uh, front and center in the game against the Red Wings, and we should spend some time giving the penalty kill some praise here because we spent a large part of that opening segment talking about the power play and their struggles and what they need to do and what that configuration needs to be. While quietly, the penalty kill has been one of the best in the league over the last couple of months, and adding Lindholm to a penalty kill that was already doing well is important 
for moments like this, where you lose Dakota Joshua for a few weeks to injury, and that's one of your key penalty killers, guess what? You've got another guy that can go in there that you trust, that can win a draw for you on the other side of the ice, which is something that this team hasn't had. They're all left-shot centers other than Lindholm, so that's a new dimension for them, both on the power play, on the penalty kill, and at even strength. And, you know, we could talk about the offense. The four goals are great. The chemistry he begins or or seems to be beginning to build with Pedersen is important. But the defensive attributes and what he brings to the penalty kill are as important, if not more important, than the offensive side of things. And there's been a lot of discussion about the duel with him and Elias Pedersen and the ability to, to pick up, what, six points for that line in the last game. But I also want to focus on another duo. It's him and Teddy Bluger, which is the PK duo uh, in terms of forwards, where, you know, that's the trusted one. That's the first one over the boards. And even against uh, Detroit late in that game batch where uh, Alex Lyon has gone to the bench. They, it's a five-on-four situation, coincidental minors uh, late in the game. And who's that first duo that's over the boards yet again to protect the lead? It's Teddy Bluger and Elias Lindholm. So, you know, it's situations like that that we're starting to see now. But, you know, those are the types of when you're protecting a lead and you need to win a draw, you're going to get your two of your best face-off guys out there. And JT Miller's no slouch either. But just having that responsibility and that uh, respect for their defense, which is something that I think Lindholm, you know, when he was playing alongside Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Gaudreau, uh, they were putting up monster numbers. He had a heck of a season as well, but he was still able to play kind of uh, a little bit more defensive. He didn't necessarily have to, you know, jump into the the play as much as those other two guys because they were having absolutely huge seasons. And you could see that illustrated in the the production where Gaudreau and Kachuk had more uh, points, where Lindholm had 80 points, but still was was a guy that was probably the the defensive, you know specialist and a 200-foot player on that line, which he came in second in Selkie voting that year. So there's an element to his game where offense excites. There's no doubt about that. But defensively, I think there's a lot more that we're going to see here. And that's what it probably excites Rick Tockett more than the offense to say, I know I have a player I can trust. And not only trust to not make a mistake, but in those key moments, make the right play. Whether it's you know a read defensively, whether it's winning a draw batch, uh, this is a type of player that we haven't seen too often in Vancouver. Just that hybrid that is so smart and skilled. And the fact that things have gone so well so early bodes well for me because chemistry is something that they're still working through. This is a guy who has only played six games as a Canuck, went to the All-Star game as a Flame, and then had to go on a five-game road trip and is now in a new city and is still getting his feet under him, and he's still playing this well. So give him some time to build chemistry with some line mates. Give him some time to get settled in Vancouver, and I think the impact that he could have for this team could only be greater and greater than what we've seen thus far. And on the topic of chemistry, it was a really good night for the Hoaglander, Pedersen, Lindholm line, the Swedish line, whatever we're going to call them. Um, They had a really good game, and we're starting to see some of that chemistry develop. And, you know, we mentioned Rick Tockett raving about Lindholm after the game. A large part of what he liked was how Lindholm kind of solidifies that center ice position. And this isn't to criticize Elias Pedersen because Pedersen is a great centerman in his own right. He's been one for the Canucks throughout the majority of his NHL career, but he's not a Selkie candidate or hasn't been yet to this point in his career. Whereas Lindholm 
legitimately has been considered one of the premier two-way centermen in the game. And you add that to your top six, and you add it onto a line with some skilled offensive players like Pedersen and Hoaglander, and I already see the parallels, albeit a little bit different, to that Gaudreau and Kachuk line, where Lindholm was the defensive conscience and those guys put up the points. And I think it's a big opportunity for Pedersen and Hoaglander to benefit from having Lindholm down the middle. Oh, for sure. And you start looking at you know what he's able to do. Uh, 58% in the face-off circle since joining the Vancouver Canucks. That's probably a sign of things to come because he's usually in that 56 to 58%. You couple that with, you know, other centermen on this team. JT Miller has consistently been a, what, 55, 56% face-off person uh, as well. You've got Teddy Bluger who's in that 53% range. So I can understand why Rick Taka would say, hey, on top of that, you know, just being a really good two-way player, you're also winning some key draws. You you have that in your DNA. Now, after the last game against Detroit, Taka did mention that it would probably be an on-off thing where Elias Pettersson would also, you know, play the middle as well. Um, and let's be honest, right? Players, especially if you've grown up being a center, uh, that means something to a lot of these guys. So I'm sure uh, Pettersson probably wants to play a little bit down the middle as well. So you have to... You have to be careful when you're a coach where you're saying, hey, you both are going to get an opportunity. But uh, when it's crunch time, when you need somebody to take that key draw, when you need, you know, potentially a, a lock it up kind of defensive effort from somebody, I would expect Elias Lindholm to get that just because, as I mentioned, he's got that experience. He's got that in his DNA. But it's a good situation to be in where you can actually say, hey, both of you guys, you know, I, I trust you both defensively, but you're going to play together and and certain nights, maybe your role is to shut down the other team's top line. Other nights you can put up six points like you did against Detroit. Uh, It's a pick your poison type of situation when you're playing. And it's a good spot to be in for if you're in uh, talk and shoes, because remember, and I don't want to necessarily highlight Andre Kuzmenko, but we go from a situation where on this line, there's a question of, can he trust all three players? And now you're in a situation where, he trusts Lindholm, no doubt about that. He trusts Pedersen, and he even trusts Niels Hoaglander, who... Oh, I would say he's getting there with Hoaglander. I, I, was gonna, I would say in the corners, uh, in you know, just the ability to... When Ho- Hoaglander's playing his game batch, right? Like, Full-on 200-foot game, he doesn't trust it yet, which is, you can see, the ice time. And there's even some comments made a couple of games ago where, you know, a giveaway here or losing your man there. But... I think what he does trust about his game is that that recklessness, which is something that Rick Tockett has, you know, has really talked about wanting to see be a part of Niels Hoaglander's game. So it's not full-on trust, but he does trust the style of game that Niels Hoaglander plays, and it's one that the coach wants. So, you know, as a fit, that line right now, it's, it's pretty trusted. Maybe not to the full maximum with Niels Hoaglander, but he's definitely getting there. Yeah, and, and Tockett basically said as much after the game against the Red Wings, where... Uh, you know, he praised Hoaglander in the way he played and said he's made some big strides in his 200-foot game. Now there's still room for him to grow, and we see some of those missed assignments in the defensive zone, and those are the things that are are going to give Tockett some pause in terms of trusting Hoaglander in some of those spots. And 
you know, in terms of increasing his minutes. He's even talked about the fact that they think he gets tired when they play him a little bit too much later in games, and that's been part of why they've limited his minutes. So whether that's a conditioning issue or just a young guy that still needs to to build up some of his strength and conditioning to get to the point where he can play a greater role remains to be seen. Um, but it's clear that Talkit is increasing in terms of that trust because after basically not playing Hoaglander on the power play for almost the entire season, the last couple of games, Hoaglander's had a look there. Now with Joshua out of the lineup, it looks like he's going to be a staple on that second power play unit. So that's an opportunity for him here to generate some more of that offense, to use some of that, that skill set that Talkit likes. And, you know, Talkit was talking about it after the game that, you know, he's, he's sort of a, a greasy player. Like I would almost call him sneaky dirty. Uh, we saw the high stick that he ended up getting fined for on uh, Jake Wallman that, that led to the whole gritty debacle with Zadorov and all of that stuff. Um, but, like that's when Hoaglander's at his best and and Talkett essentially said look he was trying to be too cute and and too skilled when we had him up the lineup early in the year and he needs to understand that the role we need him to play even if he's in the top six is more of that grinding role that forechecking role and yes you're going to have the opportunity to score goals and we've seen him score some nice goals over the last couple of weeks but you're going to get those goals because of the opportunities you create for yourself through work on the forecheck and recovering pucks and and making those sorts of plays and it seems to me anyway that you know, as we turn the calendar into 2024 and now we're out of the all-star break and we're truly into the stretch run, that Hoaglander has a much greater understanding of what he needs to do to have success, whether he's on the first line or the fourth line. And we've seen him in both spots in the last few weeks. No doubt. And I think for a lot of, uh, you know, players that maybe reside in the, the bottom six, when they go into that top six, they feel like they have to change their game. And I think a great example of how you don't do that when you're a bottom six player at some point in your career and you go into the top six is Zach Hyman, right? Uh, 32 goals this year, and sure, he's playing with Connor McDavid. He's playing with those types of players. But his mentality when he went from the middle six and the bottom six to the top six in Toronto was, I still have to play the exact same way. He's translated that over to Edmonton as well. And Batch, the, the shot chart for... All of Zach Hyman's 32 goals this year are right in and around the blue paint. You don't change anything from what you're doing. Maybe because you're playing next to a Connor McDavid or an Elias Pettersson, you feel like you might have to. But when you're that player on that line, a skill line, what got you to that top six spot is your tenacity, your recklessness, uh, your really... You're the jerk factor, which is something that Niels Hoaglander is starting to lean into. So, you know, this 2.0 experience for him to go in the top six is very different because I think he's just okay being himself to say, all right, I understand what I have to do to make these guys around me better and vice versa. And you're starting to see that where he's still continuing to score goals. But, you know, the factor of just being in and around the net and getting now a chance on power play too in front of the net uh, it's a reward for the style of play that he is now putting out quite consistently at the NHL. So we'll see how that Hoaglander, Lindholm, Patterson line plays, assuming they stay together going forward over the next week. We do also have to talk about the big story around this team, and that was the arrival of Phil Kessel in the lower mainland and now the Fraser Valley in the last week, skating with the Abbotsford Canucks. Elliot Friedman reporting that unless things are in a really bad way with Kessel in terms of his conditioning or the way things go, he expects the Canucks to sign the 36-year-old 
three-time Stanley Cup champion. And they've got some time here. They just have to sign him and have him on the roster prior to the trade deadline in order for him to be eligible to play in the postseason for this team. And I'm going to be interested on your perspective on this, Randeep, but for me, my initial reaction is that this is a low-risk and possibly no-risk move with potential benefits. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say huge benefits, but certainly potential benefits for this team both on and off the ice if things can work out with Phil Kessel. Yeah, and the big question, and really nobody has an answer to this right now when it comes to the on ice, is you know what is he? I don't know. Well, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of it has to do with let's see how that conditioning is. Let's see how long it takes him to ramp up he hasn't played, you know, hockey in 10 months. Um, but more than anything, I, I think the off-ice component here is really key for a team that does have veteran players on it, has, you know, some young leaders on the team. They've done a great job of having a, a very good mix. But Phil Kessel's not that type of personality that overpowers a room. He's a guy that complements a room. He's a guy that brings his unique character, keeps it loose. Um, and people, whether it's, you know, a, a Jack Eichel last year in – in uh, Vegas, or it was Clayton Keller in Arizona. Like these guys love being around him. So to me, as of right now, I, I who knows what the on ice elements will be. I guess we're gonna have to see that through the workouts and all of that. But I like you know from everything that I've heard and I've talked to people. Ha- of course, having some experience covering the Penguins during their Stanley Cup runs, uh, he was a very dynamic player then. In the, not only on that HBK line, but him and Yevgeny Malkin were probably the best duo in overtime for a, a span of about three or four years in the league where it was money. It was guaranteed that they'd score the OT winner. Um, you know, fast forward uh, many years from that now, seven, eight years. Uh, I'm not really sure where that is, but he is a natural athlete. He's a guy that can score. And when you're in a pinch and you need somebody, maybe in a playoff series, you need, maybe the offense is a little stale. You need somebody who can shoot out the lights and maybe play on your power play to just get the offense going. If Phil Kessel is, you know, similar to what we've seen the last couple of iterations, he's still capable of doing that. So part of this is just going to be down to what kind of shape is he in and what kind of shape can he can, can he get into batch? Yeah, and the one thing you know is that he loves the game and really wants this opportunity to work because for a guy that's won three Stanley Cups, has accomplished all he has in the game, you know, the the Ironman and everything around that streak, at 36 years of age, after not getting a contract, after only playing four games in the playoffs last, last year and being off for 10 months, it would be easy to be like, okay, I guess my time's up, I had a good run, I'm out of here and I'm going to ride off into the sunset and retire. This is a guy that has showed up in Abbotsford in the middle of February ready to work. Like, you know he wants it and he wants to be a part of something here in Vancouver. And the reason I call it a no-risk move is because I really don't see a downside to this, right? You bring him into Abbotsford. If he can't get into the shape you want him to be in or doesn't look like he can be a factor for you by the trade deadline, then don't sign him. If you think he can help, then sign him, but you're not going to have to pay him that much because he just wants an opportunity here, even if he never gets into your lineup. You've heard all the stories from his former teammates, and if you hadn't, haven't, I encourage you to go on social media, look at what Jack Eichel said about him, look at what Jonathan Marchessault said about him. You mentioned Clayton Keller as well. John Michael Lyles has come out with some great stories of his time as a Toronto Maple Leaf. Rick Tockett had a great story about him when he was on the TNT broadcast the other night. Like, all the things you hear about Phil Kessel are quality human being, 
And you can never have enough of those guys around your team, whether they're in the lineup or not, whether they're difference makers or not. And we've heard stories out of Vegas last year about how important he was for that group on their playoff run, even though he got into four games in the playoffs by the end of it. Totally. And this is a guy that really has lived the hockey experience. He went into Toronto. Uh, this was, a, you know, the center of the universe, but he found his way. He found a way to deal with the pressure when he went to Pittsburgh. And since then, we'll see, right? Like this, I think there's going to be a lot of value, first of all, for the Abbotsford Canucks players, like whether it's, you know, Archie Baines or uh, Linus Carlson or some of the younger guys that are coming up through the ranks just to get a sense of, you know, what it takes to be a, a long-time NHLer and, and being in love with the game. And the other side is at the NHL club, Hey, how many winners are in that room, right? There's a few. Uh, his teammate in Pittsburgh, Ian Cole, is one of them. There's a few other guys that have, have made some deep playoff runs. But having that experience, the ability to keep a loom, uh, room light and and really tapping into a, a vet that just loves the game, that doesn't happen very much. But, you know, the big question is, it's the skill set, right? Uh, it's always been there, but, you know, what's left in the tank, I guess, is the question. Uh, and that... The only person that can answer that question, Batch, is one Phil Kessel. So we'll see when that happens, if and when that happens. All right, before we get out of here, let's get into the rose ceremony. I'm going to go first, and very simply, I'm giving my rose to Nikita Zadorov for not just hitting the gritty, but hitting the revenge gritty in the win over the Red Wings. And he was all personality in the post-game and media availability. Joined us on the post-game show as well. Wasn't shy, and that's what I like about Nikita Zadorov. Um, my rose is going to go to another defenseman on the team. I thought he set the tone in the first period against Detroit. Noah Juleson, three blocks in the first period, shorthanded. The guy has turned into a trusted defenseman at the NHL level for this team. And I thought that first period against Detroit was a classic example, Batch. And that does it for us this week on In the Booth. We'll hopefully chat with you next week. We'll see how Batch Baby Watch goes. But And hold sh- on. i, I got to cut you off here, Batch. Okay. A happy birthday, February 16th, a time of recording. <laughs> happy birthday to Brendan Batchelor. And, uh, yes, Baby Watch continues as well, but wanted to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you very much. And uh, Brian wrote in on Twitter and wished me a happy birthday as well. So I appreciate all the birthday love we'll see if we chat with you next week on the show we'll figure out how the baby watch goes but we will be with you saturday night the canucks and the jets right here on your official home of the canucks sportsnet 650